Now, some people like ads, some people don't, and that's okay. But we like to keep everyone happy. So if you're one of the people who doesn't like to listen to ads, choose the Dave Mac Williams Plus option on Apple Podcasts, and you can listen to this podcast just the way you like it. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It is podcast time and we are continuing our little European tour, which is probably, John Fairness, environmentally very, very uh, dodgy, given what's happening all around the world. But this time we are not traveling to the country in question. We are going to talk to one of the finest Irish academics. It's a bit like the old, old days, you know, when Irish monks went abroad, you know, St. Gallen and all those sort of fellows in Switzerland. And we do send a lot of academics abroad. And one is Joe Haslam, who is at the business school called IE Business School in Madrid, which is consistently in the top five business schools in Europe. But we want to talk about Spain, John, because they have just had an election. Yes. In this election, the fascist party Vox were supposed to become the kingmakers. And an entire, well, maybe not an entire, but a huge amount of column inches were written about whether or not Vox would be the kingmakers, they would create a situation whereby they would push the party popular, which is the normal right-wing party, mm. into more extreme right-wing positions, uh, simply because that's what tends to happen. And what? we've been talking about this theme in Europe, the way, you know, in France and in Italy, the way the extreme right has become normalized. So the view was that Spain was going to follow that particular path that the extreme right would become normalized. Yeah, I, I noticed that last year. Remember, I did my travel around Spain last yes. year, climbing yes. up the, the Picos and then down to Tarifa and stuff. And of all the people I was speaking to, people were saying, yeah, everything was moving slowly but surely to the right. And all the local governments, all the local elections that occurred over the last few years were all becoming right wing. And so, as you say, it was expected that it was the expected. national government was going to shift the same direction. But, but it that didn't. didn't happen. Yeah. It didn't happen. So the Party Popular, okay, or Partido Popular, are still the biggest party. 
and they are a centre-right, middle-of-the-road, European, Christian-Democrat type of party, okay? Let's say the status quo, for want of Mm. a better word. They're still of the status quo. On the left, you have the Socialist Party, which is the party of Felipe González, which is the party that basically inherited Spain from Franco, and many would say built Spain in the 1980s and 1990s, and then hit the buffers. They have emerged, Pedro Sánchez being the boss man, as still most likely the boss man. And there's going to be a coalition put together. But what is interesting, John, is the fact that Spain did not go down, as you say, that right-wing road, that Vox did not do well, that the Spaniards did not turn out in great numbers to vote for a party that sees as its cultural heritage part of that Francoistic legacy that they said, well, maybe not, maybe not this time. So in contrast to Italy, where Maloney is very much the politician of the moment. And in contrast to France, where, as we said a couple of weeks ago, the prospect of President Le Pen is a real thing. Yeah. The Spaniards, in actual fact, said, you know what? Maybe not. So it's something, there's something fascinating happening in Spain. But I think, why don't we go to Joe Haslam? He's in yep. Galicia and ask Joe what's going on. So let's go, John, because I know Galicia is a part of the world. You've, you've uh, strolled I love around. It. I love it. I know, I, I know, it. I know. So we will take you psychologically. We will transport you to Galicia. And away we go. Let's go to Galicia. As you know, over the last couple of weeks, we have been doing our European tour, which has seen us go from Germany. Well, we started in Belgium, then we went to Germany, then we went to France, then last week we went to Italy. This week, we're going to go to Spain in the wake of the Spanish general election, which didn't really throw up any clear winner. We're going to talk about that in a second. But again, the essence of these podcasts is to try and get under the bonnet of these societies, countries, cultures, and see what makes them tick. And on Spain, I am delighted, delighted that I can see down the line Joe Haslam, who is a professor of business at the number one, I think, rated business school in Europe, i.e. business school in Madrid. Joe's been there for a long, long time. He knows Spain backwards. I've actually gone out and done some work with Joe many years ago, lecturing down there. Wonderful, wonderful place. Joe, great to see you. How are you? Great, it's good to be here, Dave. Now, tell us, tell us, you are in Galicia. What is Galicia? One thing I'm going to ask you, number one, is where is Galicia? What is it like? And explain to me why so many political characters, no less than John's friend Fidel Castro, hail from Galicia. <laughs> it, it's true. And, and not only that, but, but Castro used to come here and his best friend was a guy who was kind of on the extreme right, who used to be a minister in Franco's government. But So it's a sort of interesting... Oh, wait, I did not know that. Yeah, a guy called Manuel Fraga, who was, I mean, basically the the, the guy who started the, the Partido Popular. And you listen, if you grow up in a small town and, and Castro's parents were from Galicia, you know, you have a lot more in common. I mean, I see it a lot with my students, you know, whereby people who you would think are, you know, like rivals or things like that, they have a lot in common because they come from the same part of the world. You know, like the, the Saudis and the Israelis get on really well, you know, even though they, they can never admit to knowing each other or connecting on LinkedIn or anything like that. And you, But that's something that you find. So, you know, irrespective of your political views, you know, you like a, a good leg of lamb or something like that. You like a nice piece of ham. So, I mean, Galicia is basically the Ireland of the North. Mm. And... 
you know, you wouldn't want to miss a funeral here if you're a Galician politician, you know. I, mean, I love it. They, you know, the image of Spain is bullfighting and senoritas and, and all of that kind of stuff. But, I mean, you are literally, you know, there are parts of Galicia where you see like five bar gates and, and you know, ash trees. And, and you would literally wouldn't know that you're in Spain. Yeah. People are talking about Galicia as kind of climate refugees. You know, there are a lot of people in Spain that used to go south are now looking at coming to the north coast uh, because the you know the weather it won't be so hot. Is it true that the Camino uh, in Ireland starts at St James's Gate at the Guinness? Yeah, Factory? you can get a stamp actually. When I did the Camino many years ago, and you you, <laughs> you walk brilliant. into um, it's true, John. I'm telling you the things the things you learn in this podcast, John, because <laughs> Santiago is St James, right? Yeah. But you start. With yeah. a pint of stout at St. James's Gate. There you go. Joe's wearing the T-shirt. <laughs> I mean, there was a rumor that you, they'd give you a free pint or something like that. And I did ask, but... Uh, <laughs> but you didn't no. get. And they said, I no. Let's leave Caminos, Galicia, the green part of Spain. Let's talk about Spain, Joe. It's a huge, huge question. It's going to be difficult to answer. What makes Spain tick? Because... One of the things that we've tried to do in this series is try to not disentangle, but at least avoid the stereotypes. Because every time I go to Spain or a Spanish-speaking country in particular, I've been down to Latin America a couple of times, we forget as English speakers the extraordinary footprint of the Spanish world and all things Spanish and the language and the culture and the history, etc. So what makes this fascinating country tick? Well, it's interesting, uh, the lack of nostalgia there is for the empire. I mean, that's the first thing you need to say. I mean, as, as is said here, which is to say that the Spanish empire covered a lot more territory and lasted for a lot more years than the British empire. And, you know, the Brits do tend to go on about their empire. And uh, in Spain, they have this thing called, the you know, the day of Hispanidad, and literally, like it's 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 the wettest damp squib you've ever seen. Like literally, nobody turns up, but the footprint is there. I mean, I have a lot of fun when I go there because, of course, uh, like you know, a lot of the the people who who kind of got rid of the Spanish in Latin America were Irish themselves. You know, they love that. So, so let's talk about Spain. You have the Iberian Peninsula itself. Napoleon dismissed as saying Africa begins at the Pyrenees. You have this conflict with France ongoing for many, many years. You have a conflict with England ongoing for many, many years. You then have, of course, the Spanish Civil War, which for many political types sort of almost frames Spain forever afterwards. You have Franco coming in. Then you have Franco goes. I mean, these are tumultuous political events. So explain to me the context of the election today. We're going to talk about the election and what Spain's like that. But give us a little bit of the background of the historical baggage that Spanish politics is carrying. Yeah, I mean, I guess you have to go back to what's called the two Spains. Uh, Machado, the, the poet who talked a lot about the two Spains. One is almost like the joyful kind of Spain. And then there's like the cold, austere Spain, you know, and, and the history of Spain has always been reconciling those two things. So, you know, the, the, the conquistadors were, you know, people who were able to go out and achieve really difficult things and, and in a kind of almost a joyless way. Whereas, you know, you had a lot of, even though Spain under Franco, it was still quite a joyous place, you know, I mean, the biggest illusion, and, and, and this works in a business sense, is that someone like a dictator is really under control. 
I mean, yeah, of course there are, you know, politically, but but economically and in other ways, you know, you could, there's still a lot of things you can do. So that never really left. And of course, when, when Franco died, you know, there was the Movida, which was all this big expression of, of things and that like, but all that artistic stuff was, was all there ready. Let us go into modern Spain. As you say, the fast trains, the Zaras, this unbelievably entrepreneurial country, expressive country, vivacious country, which is really, really doing extraordinary things on a commercial level and an economic level. So explain that to me. What's going on there? Yeah, I mean, what Spain doesn't do well is, is sell itself. You know, the Italians sell themselves fantastically. Uh, the French sell themselves fantastically. Uh, but the Spanish have never really done that, you know, and that's something that they're still struggling with, you know. So they they export all their grapes to France, who turn it into wine. They export all their olives to Italy, who put a label on it and sell it for five times. Even things like cars, trains and planes, it's all other people's stuff. You know, they make cars for Volkswagen. They make trains for Alstom and they make planes for Boeing. You know, you, it's not a kind of a Spanish brand on top of it. But in Spain, they're very proud of being engineers. You know, it's not just my son, the doctor, my son, the lawyer. My son, the engineer is, is a yeah. big thing here. I know, you know you're from Cork, but you don't have to rub it in. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, and, and they built like all over the world, you know, you'll find Spanish engineers. I mean, the top four construction companies were engineering. They're doing the, the fast train to Mecca. Like there's a, basically there's, a, there's a, an Egyptian temple in the middle of Madrid. And when I asked why it was there, it was because, you know, they built the, the dam in Egypt. And when they were flooding the valley, they were like, one of the temples was being lost. So they said, Asher, we'll send it over to Madrid. We've got loads of them. So engineering is a big thing. And, you know, that's why you see, you know, the roads are so good and there's tunnels. I mean, the, the former mayor of Madrid was called the pharaoh because he just liked to build stuff, you know. And, and we look at Ireland and our inability to build anything. You know? I know, I know. I mean, that is the extraordinary thing about Spain is when you, when you arrive in Spain, the infrastructure is outrageously modern. And as you said, they continue to build. And it's not just the railways, it's not just the roads. You know, when you're in any of the major Spanish cities, you feel like I am in a place where people are really concerned about how we live and how we get from A to B and how the city works and how the municipality works. And what you're saying is that one of the great untold stories is this engineering capacity. But let's talk about a company like Zara, because Zara is known as having disrupted probably the most competitive industry in the world, the garment industry. Explain that and explain what that tells us a wee bit about Spain. Yeah, well, of course, um, Zara is from Galicia, so I'm from, and, and literally, like, when you look around here and you see, like, a magnificent house, you would almost certainly know that that person worked for Zara. You know, that's kind of where a lot of the, the money came from. It's a really interesting story, a guy called Amancio Ortega. And famously, when he was, like, 12 or something like that, his mother was refused credit in a shop. And uh, he just said, right, fuck this, basically, and said, uh, I'm out of school and I'm going to set up. And he, you know, he started doing like dressing gowns and things like that, what are called batas. And then he worked with his ex-wife, who, who sadly died. And then when they was in his 40s anyway, which was a really interesting thing about something I talk a lot about, the age of entrepreneurship. You know, we associate it with a young person, but he would have started in his mid-40s and he grew this thing to be for a while the richest man in the world. It's amazing, isn't it? He owned 60% of the company. And 
two or three things worth saying about it, that the concept was sort of based on that clothing are like fish. You know, they, they smell on the third day. You know, that was sort of the idea that something goes it. into a shop. <laughs> you want it to be fresh. And he also did an awful lot of like local decision making. Actually, in the IPO document, he talked about Celtic management. You know, this was sort of like the style of Zara is basically based on something called Celtic management. Which is what, Joe? Which is based actually on, on female empowerment, you know, which is basically that if you go back and you have like Maeve and Bridget and all these people, you know, that before the, uh, you know, the, the crowd from next door came along, women and men were equal. That's and, very well put. <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. Like, it's funny, you, the, the anti-English jokes go down very well here because, of course, England and, and, and Spain <laughs> fought military wars against each other. You know, there's there's a famous saying which says, you know, never take a piss without pissing in the direction of England, you know, which is. Uh... <laughs> anyway, I'm having too much fun here. I need to go back to being a serious professor from a serious business school. You know? The most serious professors are always the best crack. That's what I've always known. The best form of communication is humor. We've always said that. So let's not piss in the direction of England just yet, but explain to me. So the Celtic management, it's flat, it's women, female empowerment. This is fascinating. It was the biggest company in the world or one of the biggest companies in the world. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. And yeah, it's called, so their, their style is based on Celtic management, which is, is the trinity of like the three stools together, Celtic management and, and empowerment. And they built this thing. But what's interesting is that the kind of, you know, and I, I did listen to your podcast about Italy, where you talked about drones, but also you talked a lot about Germany and industrial families. And you talked about France in terms of elites and you talked about the UK in terms of nostalgia. And there are elements of all of those things. In Jesus, Spain. Joe, you've done your record. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but uh, the thing about we have those drones as well. And like one of the issues, I mean, I've been studying entrepreneurship for years and years and years. And the, the reason why countries don't have more entrepreneurs isn't because of like insider outsiders and, and elites and institutions. It, a lot of it is just it just never occurs to people to set up a company in the first place. You know, yeah, like true. one of the problems with Spain is I meet people all the time and they have like great ideas and stuff like that. But it's just the idea of setting up a company is as strange to them as like climbing Mount Everest or, or doing like an Antarctica traverse. It just doesn't kind of feature. So the industry comes from people who are already in industry. So, you know, yeah. if your family had a business, then you continue with the business, which is fine. And those people are serious and hardworking and, and, and all of that. But it, it just means that, like, you just don't have enough people who, and, and I think there's a guy called Carl Schramm, whose, whose mother was Irish, actually. But, you know, he talks about the prosperity of a country is the number of companies that scale up. And that's very true. You know, we have like the Paddy Powers. I mean, the, the Smith's Toys guy died sadly during the week. You know, absolutely incredible story. You know, you inherited a toy factory from, you know, I think in, in Termaris or somewhere. And then it was suddenly like all over Europe, you have like Smith's Toys and stuff like that. So the problem in Ireland, as with Spain, is we don't have enough of Smith's Toys. I know what you mean. Homegrown, scaled up, scaled up businesses where the ambition is there, where the capital is there. But let's let's get back to Spain and what is happening, because when I read about Spain, I read about Catalonia, I read about the Basque country, I read about this conflict between central Spain and the regions, I read about an inconclusive election last week. Explain all that sort of where politics, geopolitics, Europe, and then these 
fermenting ethnic conflicts bubble up under the surface every now and then? Yeah. Well, the first thing is like Spain is a very decentralized country. You know, that was, they, they called it like after the transition, it's called Café para Todos. You know, everyone kind of gets something. So, you know, the Catalans control about 85% of their budget. And sort of the offer, certainly from the socialist side is, you know, you can have everything except independence, basically. You, you literally like, we will absolutely let you run the place as you want, but, but, you know, we won't give you independence. And that also fits in with Europe. I mean, the biggest problem Catalonia have is that the Germans don't want an independent Catalonia either. The French don't want an independent, because of course that will trigger Bavaria and that will trigger, you know, all the other places as well. So the Catalans are sort of like stuck in that, you know, even if they could get over, convince Spain to let them go, there's no place in Europe for them. So why do you put all this effort in creating all this tension? Why not you just get on with the business of making money? You know, that's kind of where they are right now, where they they made this big push. And, uh, you know, I mean, it wasn't a legal referendum and and all of that thing. So is the Catalan drive, has it kind of hit the buffers a wee bit? Because it was, is that like three years ago's news? It's fatigue because, you know, they made a big push and it, it didn't really get them anywhere. I guess that there is a problem that Catalonia is a wonderful place. You know, it's like it's hard to feel oppressed when life is good. You know, you, you need literally to have, you know, whatever, jackboots and all this kind of stuff, which was why I'm so glad that Vox didn't get into government, because Vox would, would bring all of that. You know, so let's let's talk. Now, you mentioned Vox. Let's talk about Vox. Who are they? Where do they come from? And why did they do so badly, given that they were been trumpeted as like an AFD sort of almost Brexit-y, also almost Maloney, almost Le Pen power? Well, a worrying number of them went to school in Ireland and a worrying number of them like to go on holidays in Ireland. Explain that to me. Okay, explain that to me. <laughs> I shouldn't be telling you stuff like this, Matt, because you love these kind of guys, but there's a big guy. He's basically the regional guy. He's the real ideologue and he went to school in Gormanstown, you know, and, and I, I ran into no him. Way. It's really kind of, you know, Vox. Would so Vox are a fascist party. So we're producing fascists. Remember they said Ireland is the land of saints and scholars. When Europe went through the dark ages, we maintained, we had the we had the, the flame for academia and intellectual. So what you're saying is Ireland is producing fascists and exporting them to Spain. And Portugal. The head of the fascist party in Portugal has a PhD from UCC. You know, <laughs> but, sorry, are, these, are these Spanish and Portuguese kids whose parents sent them to either boarding school or they actually went to learn English? You know, because John and I's youth, our summer youth was populated by I was, what I was called the smell on the top of the 46A <laughs> was the essence of Spanish student when I was a yeah. kid, right? I used to go to mass twice to see the Spanish students, you know? There you go, there you go, there you go. And John and I used to get the 46A into town yeah. only, only, to, see only to see them coming on in their droves, to smell them coming on in Dean's Grange. Hundreds of them. And, and the, of them. the exotic All these little begonias and Marias and everything. Oh and they had the essence of 4711. It was a cologne. Yes. From, do you remember that? That was their yeah. essence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez famously came to Ireland, as did the Prime Minister of like Luxembourg, I think, and, and another country as well. The four of them did a, a photo op with Leo. And, you know, he, he talks about it was his first kiss. And the, the coming force in Spanish politics, which is Isabel Ayuso, she also 
you know, work for Spin FM in Dublin, putting on Depeche Mode tracks. So wow. it's a really interesting thing that you have these people and they just go to pieces when you mention Ireland. They're like, their eyes light up. And, you know, <laughs> I've spoken to, to both of them about it. And, and you know what? It's a really funny thing that, you know, Spanish parents are like the classic helicopter parents, you know, and they're like, what time are you going back? Who are you going with? And then they would go to some house in like Drogheda or Kells and the family would be like, Jesus, you know, hope to see you later kind of thing. Like, and they yeah, were like, yeah, the keys, the keys under the mat. One of my favorite stories, there was this girl and she was going for an interview in Google and, and she met the taxi driver and he saw she was really nervous, right? Getting a job for Google. You get a job at Google in Dublin, you spend four years, you'll go back to Spain and you'll, your salary is four times. Yeah, yeah, you'll be the queen. Life-changing. So the guy, the taxi driver, he pulled over into a church on the way from the airport (laughs) and said, listen, go in there now and say a quick prayer. You're you're, you're looking a bit nervous, right? And she didn't really know kind of what was going on here, but she did it. She came out, she calmed down, she got the job, and whenever I meet her now, you know, and that's, that's, you know, we give taxi drivers and all going over at times, you know, but that sort of decency, it's those kind of things that people love about Ireland because, you know, Spain is, is, is very kind of, you know, Usher, there's nothing I can do kind of stuff. And I but have, you, you, you are right that we are very connected with Spain. Look, you're sidetracking. Let us get finally to the nuts and bolts of Spain, right? So we have an entrepreneurial culture, but we also have a, a culture that is, can be quite austere. We have the constitutional crisis has sort of ebbed a little bit. We also, I mean, we know there's low productivity, there's low wages, there's high unemployment. There are all these things that are very, really quite different and difficult to get out of. But explain to me just one last thing before we go. Why was the election so inconclusive last week and what does it mean for Spanish stability? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of like a lot of elections. It's not how they do the voting. It's how they do the counting. So you have this system of proportional representation. And, you know, Vox's numbers in terms of percentage didn't actually drop that much, but it dropped below a threshold. So they got less seats. So where the the difficulty kind of comes from is is now that you sort of have two blocks, you know, and uh, I would imagine that Pedro Sanchez will probably, you know, by one vote, because He's president of the EU for this six-month period, so there's a lot of pressure from Europe not to, to mess that up. So I think that's probably what will happen, that he will just sort of get in and then it will be inconclusive for a while and there'll be no legislation passed because, of the course, the numbers are so tight, it's hard to get lots of parties to agree. But let me just be bored. There's one thing I wanted to say, which, as you said, in, in the law, and which is there's sort of three factors that are common in terms of the analysis you've done in Italy and Germany and in France and the UK. And there were like those three things are, are common problems in Spain. And the first thing is the lack of investment because of like all the interest payments we're having to pay on the debt. You know, a lot of these countries, whether it's Italy, Spain, you know, I mean, you can have their own currency, but having to pay a lot of money you're back in debt means you, you don't have investment. The second thing is that too much emphasis on property prices and not enough on wages. You know, wages in, in Spain are really, really low. I mean, if, if you earn 60 grand in Spain, like you're mucho dinero, you know, only 5% of people earn more than that. So emphasis on productivity and investments in like robots and investments in technology and all of that. I mean, that's a common thing that was mentioned by your other analysis as well. And the third thing is more investment in 
you know, like what might call second tier cities. You know, this was mentioned about Germany, yeah. that one of the things that Germany has is have this middle stance, you know, these SMEs that are scaling, but also second tier cities. So Spain has basically six big cities and everyone goes towards those. But it's like, you know, you need places like Zaragoza to, to start kind of really developing rather than like Madrid, Barcelona and these kind of cities. So, you know, everyone sort of knows these things and, and, and you know, the reports come out, the, the Bank of Spain publishes these things. But for whatever reason, we get tied up in culture wars or we get tied up in other things. And you could say it's a failure of elites like in France. You know, it's a, it's a sort of a failure of the people, you know, who... The civil service class is very smart. You know, they do a lot of exams in order to become civil servants, but they just don't have, for whatever reason, or they can't get the politicians to actually like implement those kind of things. So, you know, Spain's problems are are noble and solvable, but, you know, it just doesn't come, the animal spirits or whatever you want to say, just, just doesn't come to resolving them. And then finally, if these are very similar, because it's it's very clear that, you know, Italy, Spain, France, not so much. And Germany are also societies that are going quite old. France is still quite a young society, really by virtue of immigration. And, and that creates its own dilemma. But when you look forward, right, you've been in Spain a long, long time. You've seen you know, quite a significant transition over the last, what, 20, 25 odd years in Spain. Lots of things coming and going. When you look forward, what's your sense of where Spain's likely to be in five or six years time? Well, I mean, Spain has a lot of immigration as well, but it, it, it's not a factor because it's people coming from Latin America. So they all speak Spanish and they all eat the same food and, you know, they're, they're, they integrate very well. And we've benefited an awful lot of people coming from Venezuela, you know, who are very well educated. And, uh, you know, I work with a lot of people from Venezuela and, they, they you know, they, it's been a great thing in terms of Spain. So where is Spain going? I mean, climate is the one thing we haven't discussed, and that's the biggest problem, which is to say that how much climate change will start to affect Spain. And Spain is, if you were to build a country or design a country where that was perfect for renewable energy, you would design Spain. You know, in the north, it has water, it has tides, it has sun, it has all of the renewable energy. But the problem is it also has like, you know, for politics, there are coal fired stations that can't be turned off because the miners complain and it has nuclear because that gives employment. So what Spain really needs to do is really invest a lot in renewables and, and just have cheap energy. And if you have cheap energy, you know, the right kind of people will come. You know, which was I think Andrea was her name was saying about Germany. You know, that this is this idea that cheap energy has powered an awful lot of their industry. So I think if Spain can start to push that, and then you know they will have tourism, and then agriculture is the other thing, which Spain has a lot of land and it has a lot of you know particularly in the south, but climate change is affecting that. So I think the big push for Spain has to be to have more renewable energy, and because of that, I think that that the industrial base. Uh, could start to become very competitive. Joe, we will leave it there. Uh, I will. I will be back in Madrid to uh, to have the uh, the chasing experience of discussing economics with your students one more time. And uh, but listen, we're going to fly. Great to talk to you. Okay. Bye bye. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, I have learned so much from Joe there, but the, the thing that really grabbed me was the fact that the leader of the Vox party, the fascist, was educated in Gormanstown. Now, I know a few fellas who went to Gormanstown. I know a few fascists who went to Gormanstown. Well, I just wondered, did he get one too many wedgies? And that's what turned him fascist. (laughs) You just don't know In fact, you know, speaking of wedgies, I was listening to Blind Boy's podcast the other day, and he's talking about drinking in a field in Limerick on his (laughs) leaving certain night. Yeah. (laughs) And they were chatting away, all was going well, and a bunch of lads came in to the field and accused Blind Boy and his mates of interfering with their horses in the field. Right. And Blind Boy proceeded to tell what actually happened to one of them was getting an unmerciful wedgie from these lads, which I thought in hindsight was probably getting away with it. Yeah, given what could have your happened. head kicked in. Exactly, exactly. So there you go. The subject of wedgies, John. Yes, I know, but fascists, wedgies, Gormanstown, Vox. I love the way you're thinking. It yeah, is interesting, the- though. Yeah, I'd say there's a strong correlation there. A strong correlation. Well, actually, some of the other things that he was saying, like there was, like he he mentioned about Celtic management and women empowerment, which I found very interesting. I'm not sure if I recognise that myself, though, in in Irish management. Is there such a thing? Well, he was talking about Zara. Yeah. And this extraordinary company that, as I said, managed to disrupt the most disruptive industry in the world, which is the clothing industry. Yeah. Because it's the one thing that all humans need, it's clothes. And they came out of nowhere and they have this extraordinary sort of just-in-time management approach. They take stuff that isn't working, they take it off straight away, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, he said that what the people in Zara described as their management style was Celtic management. And they described that as being a reasonably flat structure with lots and lots of women in positions of power. Mm. And that may well stem, it's very interesting because he said that the boss of Zara set up Zara in reaction to his mother not getting a credit line from a bank. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And a fascinating part of that whole story of empowerment and female management comes from what's called microbanking and a bank called the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh. And the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh was set up to give small loans to female entrepreneurs Mm. and because they had done their research and they realized that women default much less than men as Ah, a general rule. I actually saw a lot of this in India when I was there and a lot of that micro banking and micro lending. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It was fantastic. It worked really well in these small villages, small rural villages. So the idea is that women default much less. Yeah. Women are much more careful with money, much less cavalier with money. And women manage women better, was this other idea. 
So what he's saying is what they've introduced now, it's probably a branding idea. They call Celtic management because they're Galician. That's the Celtic part of Spain. They're reinforcing the idea, as Joe was saying, you know, Bridget and Queen Maeve and all those heroes that was very, very feminine in Ireland before, as Joe said, the fellas next door arrived. And upended that <laughs> yeah, whole system, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? But if you look at things like Brehon Law and all that, there's a yeah, huge amount of quality no, in it. It's a fascinating you know? idea. We will come back to that, John. We will come absolutely. back to absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We should explore that more. But the other idea that I thought was interesting from the economics perspective was instead of defining uh, prosperity of a country through its GDP, as we often talk about, but he was talking about defining it and measuring it through the number of companies that scale up, which is a very yeah, interesting idea. and I mean, that is, that's what, it's, it's the idea that, you know, it's like the one thing we know in economics is what's called clustering, that industries yeah. tend to cluster around each other, right? Because there's capital there, there's enterprise there, there's the labor force there, there's skilled people, there are networks, all that sort of idea. But what he's saying is a factor that distinguishes slow growth economies from fast growth economies is the number of individuals who back themselves in the market and scale up their businesses. Mm. And I mean, that's very much the story of Silicon Valley, which is the scaling up idea. You know, and it's very much the story of the north of Italy. It's very much the story that was of the industrialization of Germany, very much the story of the industrialization of, of England, where companies just came out of nowhere and scaled up. And again, what he's saying, and it's an interesting thing he's saying is, as a weakness in Spain, there isn't, or there aren't that many companies that are going from naught to 60 very, very quickly. And he's saying the same weaknesses in Ireland. And of mm. course, Ireland's weakness is masked by the multinationals. So the multinationals give the impression that we have all these companies that are scaled up, but they're not Irish and they're not being driven by Irish entrepreneurs. Right. And that's our, as we know, our, that's our really weak underbelly is that we are not creating local companies. So the great company in Ireland that has scaled up is Ryanair. It's now the biggest airline yeah. in the world, yeah. right? But that's one in a million. That's not happening. So what is what is Zara to Spain is Ryanair to Ireland. And there's just not that many of them. But yeah, again, another one we might come back to, John. Indeed. And then, of course, Pedro, the PM. Pedro Sanchez. Pedro Sanchez. But he was mentioning. And this when he was talking about his first kiss to Leo, it, it reminded me of, we did a podcast on a point similar to this about how the Israelis use their soft power, bringing Jewish kids to Israel to give them an experience. Uh, and that yeah, stays with them. It's the power of memory, John. And I think it's yeah. hugely important in economics. It's, it's, it's the head of the Israeli finance department, a woman called Tsipi Gal Yam, who I, I'm sure she's not there anymore, but uh, was actually originally from Yugoslavia. And I asked her in a chat about the impact of the Israelis bringing those Jewish kids when they're 15 back to Israel. I said, what do you do with them? What's the secret? And she said, we kiss them. That's the secret. (laughs) So she said, Israeli girls and boys, teenagers, have little flings with Americans and Canadians and British Jewish folk. And she said, that's the the thing. And that gels us all together. And, And it's always, I've always thought that we should do the same with our diaspora. Bring them home and snog them, right? <laughs> that is an economic, this is economic soft power, John. As you heard in the Dave McWilliams podcast, the power of the snog to create <laughs> scalable businesses through soft power in the future and drive the economy onto a higher growth plane. 
There you have it. I'm on for that. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.